Our scripture reading now is from the book of Genesis, chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden to the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Don't you want me to be happy? Doesn't God want me to be happy? About 10 years ago, I got drinks with a friend of mine in D.C. It was a hot summer. We had just reconnected through a uh, kind of 
one of those uh, high school reunion things, got together because I wanted to hear about his life and I wanted to share some of mine. I wanted to hear his story and understand it. I knew some of it and I wanted to share what I believed was the Christian hope and what it had to say to him. But basically, it came down to this, is him saying to me something like this, don't you want me to be happy? Doesn't God want me to be happy? What's the answer to that? The aim of the modern life is the freedom to do what I want so long as it makes me happy. We intuit that, we know it, we realize this is the reality we live in, and we do it ourselves. But as I said to him that day, trying to talk to him about it, I said, what if there is a design? What if there's a creator and there's a design? And there's a deeper happiness than maybe you can even imagine right now, a deeper joy, a deeper peace, a deeper love than you're living out right now. What if like an eagle that is intended to fly and you've spent your whole life as an eagle burrowing underground and you're, you can't imagine you're, you're being called to fly. And I'm saying, I think God has a design that involves flying. You're created for more. To totally butcher the C.S. Lewis phrase, it's, we cannot imagine a vacation at the beach because we spent our whole life playing in mud puddles in the slums. We think this is all there is. And for a three, four, five-year-old, a mud puddle is great. And Christians, we do this too. So when I say the aim of culture of the modern world is to pursue happiness, that's what we do. You and I do this, okay? And I know it because we look for a Christianity that fits my desire for happiness. We shape it in that way. We have a vision of what we want in life, and we want God to match that. What is the chief end of man? To pursue your own happiness. We know it intuitively. And so the question of this morning is, is there a deeper happiness? Is there a meaning in life that transcends what we can possibly imagine? And what does our body and sex have to do with it? So I've been on a 15-plus year journey in this whole topic. Um, Because of vocational things going on, I started pursuing understanding creation human identity, sex, God's intention and design in all of it. Because I think it's answering the bigger questions of why we are here and the big questions of today, of anthropology, what does it mean to be human, and all the things that we wrestle with in our modern world. But what I'm going to tell you is that I've spent 15 years reading and thinking and praying and thinking and reading and praying about this stuff, and I'm going to try and give you one sermon on it. So there's too much to say. And I know this right now. I will not answer every question that you have. I can't do that today. And that wouldn't be fair to the depth of your questions and the different uniquenesses of your own lives. But I also don't want to shut down conversation on any questions or issues that you have. And look, a sermon, in a sense, sounds like it's shutting down conversation because I'm going to be demonstrative. I'm going to declare things because I believe the Bible is true but I don't want to shut down conversations. And lastly, I don't want to lose myself. And when I say that, I mean because some of this stuff is pretty thick, okay? It's philosophically thick. 
I'm going to lose each of you at some point today. But I don't want to lose my own thinking. I'm hoping I can hold it in my own head and maybe keep every one of you coming back every so often after you fall asleep or think about food or get distracted. So a few minor goals. I've actually set two timers. One is my timer that counts up. I use it every week. The other is a timer counting down. It will bing, bing, bing if I've gone five minutes over. Okay, let me get back to this. Here's the summary statement. The body, the body is good. God created it with love and intention and eternal purposes. So let's look at Genesis 2 again. Look at it piece by piece, because we're actually going to look at this this week and next, the same topic. We're going to look at Genesis 2, piece through it, and see how much more we can get today. So Genesis 2 says this, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are both accounts of the creation of the world and of humanity. They are different accounts. They're not contradictory. One was written essentially by an engineer and one by a liberal arts major. It's like one was kind of just writing out the description and the other was writing a poem. Like, here's the artistic version of what the other person said, then this happened on day two, then day three, then day four, I observed this. So we're getting the same thing told in two different ways. But here what we get is the creation of man, that in Genesis 1 it says, and God created them, male and female, he created them, the end. But here it says God forms the man. And the language that's used there is not create, it's what a potter does with clay, shapes it and forms it, making his art, designing it for a purpose. This is a vessel to hold this or that. There's intention and design behind it. But it's not just a creature it is one that God breathes into, breathes the breath of life into, his breath, the spiritual breath of life, and the man becomes a living creature. He is described distinct from the animals. And we get that because in Genesis 1, it says that we are made in the image of God, filled with the spirit of God, the spirit of life. We have a soul. But here's something to remember. Adam, this guy we call Adam, did not exist before God formed him. Sounds kind of obvious, but to contradict sort of some thinking out there, Adam is not a soul that always existed, and then God put him into a body. We'll come back to that later, so just hold that one. So then God puts the man in the garden. We see this in verse 8. I'm going to read 8 and 9, and then 15 and 17. And the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God had made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. It's a job. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God puts the man in the Garden of Eden. The language that's used there is that of a king's paradise. It's actually Eden, paradise, or the same word. And the, the picture is of a king, and his, his garden's behind his castle. And in that culture, in that Middle Eastern and Mesopotamian culture, they would have had these beautiful gardens that nobody else could go near. 
God creates one of these for Adam and puts him in a king's garden with everything that is pleasant to the eye and good to to taste, to food. So think about that. God creates a garden, puts the man in it, and says, here is beauty, absolute beauty. Enjoy it. Here's food, all the great tastes. Taste this, taste this, enjoy it all. In fact, he says, eat everything, eat it all. Enjoy the physical creation. Eat everything. Eat of the tree of life and live forever. Except one tree, don't eat of that one. It was good. It was very good. That's the refrain of Genesis 1. God creates the heavens and the earth, and it was good. He creates the stars and the moon and the sun, and it was good. He creates the waters and the mountains, and it is good. He creates the plants, and it is good. He creates the animals, it is good. He creates humanity, it is very good. He creates a garden, it is beautifully good. Everything is good to eat. But there's one thing that's not good. We get the one not good in all of Genesis 1 and 2. In verse 18, we read, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the animals are brought to Adam. He's not only a gardener called to tend the garden, a farmer, but he's also a biologist, a zoologist, a scientist. Each of the animals is brought to him. And part of the reason why they're brought to him is so that a helper can be found for him. And yet it says not, not, a, not a helper fit for him was found for him. But if his job was to garden and to eat, why was there not a helper found fit for him? Right? I mean, like, what do you need to garden? Maybe it's a little bit more farming, and so he needs an ox or a donkey, something to plow with. They were there. He needs companionship. Golden retrievers are good. I mean, maybe they didn't have dogs there, right? Maybe he didn't have, it was like one of those wolf-type things. He's like, I don't want that as a companion. But a good dog, what else do you need? Maybe a good dog and a horse can kind of ride around. Good dog, a horse, some chickens for eggs. It was all there. He had plenty of help. In other words, we probably need to redefine help and helper. A helper is not just somebody who does the work for you that you can't do or makes it easier, okay? The word help and helper is used of God constantly in the Old Testament, this same Hebrew word. Of the 19 times that the word helper is used, only three of them are not referring to God. All the rest are referring to God. In Psalm 121, the psalmist cries out, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you, maker of heaven, creator of the earth. God, the creator, is the helper. And all the descriptions that that go with the word helper in relation to God are he is the protector, the provider, the savior, the one we rely on. 
And God is saying, somebody to rely on was not found for him. Somebody like him, fit for him, somebody he could relate to on a personal level. And so, we get the creation of the woman in this poetic description. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said of the woman, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She's formed and she's given. Now again, going back to what Dean talked about a month ago in Genesis 1 and 2, we are not getting how it happened or when it happened. We're getting who and why. In this description of the creation of Eve, the who is God. God is the one who forms her just as God is the one who forms Adam. And the why is because it was not good for him to be alone. Who can be the helper who is fit for him? The why is the aloneness was bad. It is not good for him to be alone. So don't get hung up on the how. And then we get that beautiful poem, that exclamation, that praise of Adam. This at last is bone of my bones. This at last how long had he been by himself? That phrase, at last, means it probably wasn't just like a day. He didn't name all the animals in 24 hours. This at last is bone. How long had he been there in that garden, walking around by himself, feeling the depth of that loneliness? Long enough to take a volleyball and put a face on it and talk to it? <laughs> Who knows? But at some point, he sees her. God brings her another like him. At last, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, somebody like me. He's literally talking about me-ness. Somebody like me, somebody same as me, somebody I can, I can relate to. I'm not alone. I have an equal. And he calls her woman, for out of man she was taken. And in here, we're getting a description of difference. Woman and man, male and female. And yet it is a difference that is, involves reliance. They need each other. It is a relationship of interdependence that's being described here. And then the writer sums it up in verse 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The theological summary of the entire creation of humanity is there's a man and there's a woman. That gender difference is necessary from beginning. And the two shall leave their family of origin, which is a pretty profound statement in that culture. And they shall hold fast, cling to one another. And the two shall become one flesh, literally. They will become one person and begin a new lifelong commitment that we now call marriage. 
Jesus, when asked about divorce in Matthew 19, which I'm not going to put up there, goes back to this very section. He goes back to this very section and says, look, you were made male and female. You were made male and female, and they became one body, one life. So don't pull that apart. You don't cut a person in half. Don't pull apart a marriage. Yes, there's divorce because we live post-Eden, but the original intention was not for that to happen. And then the disciples are like, well, if you can't just divorce your wife, who should marry? I mean, that sounds really hard. And Jesus is like, if you can't handle lifelong commitment of your entire self, then don't get married. But also know that your sexuality is meant to be bound up in that one location. And that's what he's talking about when he talks about eunuchs, which is basically somebody who was not, a male who was not able to have sex. He said, you could be born without the ability to have sex. You could have had something happen to you in that day and age, somebody who was enslaved and they were forced castration for various reasons. Or you could choose sexual purity for the sake of God's kingdom. In other words, sex is not necessary for the fulfillment of life. And it's meant to be found, if you're going to, in the place of marriage. Genesis 2, 24 and 25 sums that up. God's intention for marriage is within, or for sex is within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman with the possibility of new life coming. And the ultimate summary, which is then crushed in the next chapter, is in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were standing there before each other physically naked and they had nothing to be ashamed of. Not necessarily because they looked awesome. It's of course talking about shalom or wholeness or harmony as we talk about it. Physically, they were one and had nothing to hide. Spiritually, they were one and had nothing to hide. Relationally, they were one and had nothing to hide. And we could add on now, emotionally, economically, they were completely open with each other. There was no shame, no guilt, and therefore no fear. And they were able to be honest, totally, completely honest, because they were also committed totally and completely to one another. They were loving each other fully, which is what love is. To love fully is not to get what you want, and it's not just romance. To love as God loves, which is how love is defined, is to give yourself totally. As one theologian talks about it, it is total self-donation. A donation is a free gift without expecting anything in return. It's not a I give and therefore you give me back, like I pay for a meal or I pay for some shoes. Donation is just a gift, a free gift. God's love is a total free gift. To love as God loves is to totally and freely give yourself completely. That's what love is. Genesis 1 and 2, to sum it up, says the creation, the human body, male and female, is good. It is a gift of love from God. And this is affirmed, this is affirmed in Jesus, in the incarnation. You know, there's no greater compliment that the body, the human body has ever received than Christmas. 
God saying, I will become one of you. I will enter a human body to relate to you, to experience you, to redeem you. There's also no greater hope for the redemption of our broken bodies, our sinful bodies, the bodies we don't love, than the resurrection. God does not just jump away from the body after the crucifixion. He stays in the body. And then this is triply confirmed in the book of Luke in the Ascension. So Christianity says that he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. The he who ascended is Jesus. It happens in the book of Luke. It's after the resurrection, he's with the disciples, and Jesus physically, bodily ascends into heaven. What doesn't happen is one of those things like a Jedi death, where when a Jedi dies, they, they're, some of you, I'm losing you here, but some of you, you've got me, all right. The body sort of disappears, and then there's a ghost that appears later, and it's a very real ghost. You know, he's in heaven. He can talk to us. Darth Vader becomes good. Yay. Jesus bodily ascends into heaven, and Christians from the New Testament on believe that Jesus is bodily in heaven. Think about that. There is a human body, a physical human body at the right hand of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, except the Son is one of us physically. Now, in our head, we're picturing the Norse God Jesus, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, six-foot-four Jesus. The Jesus who's in heaven does not look like a Norse God. He was a first-century Middle Eastern peasant average looking in every possible way by the descriptions or lack of descriptions of him. Do you know how tall an average Middle Eastern peasant man was in the first century? Five foot one. What color skin did the average Middle Eastern person have in the first century? Not white. There's a five foot one brown-skinned man in heaven that is God. Not only that, he has grotesque scars. Some of you don't love your body. Some of you have dealt with brokenness. Jesus has holes in his hands and in his side, his back ripped up to shreds. And in his resurrection body, they're still there. And in his ascended body, they are still there. There is a five-foot-one, brown-skinned, grotesquely abused and scarred human being forever that we are worshiping. But I know that some of you in here would also say, look, I don't like my body. Every one of us has parts of our body we don't like. We're too short or too skinny. We don't like our hair. We don't like our skin. We don't like our gender. And this statement may be part of your own story. I do not feel at home in the body I've been born with. And that can be profoundly disorienting and painful. When that is the case, 
and when you endure it for years. It can be a psychological crisis of identity, of worth that leads you into despair. Our modern way of thinking about things, this way that we assume, is that our identity, what we would call like the authentic self, is the internal you. The internal you is the real you, the psychological, emotional you. What you feel you are is who you really are. The body has nothing to do with it. In other words, the body that we're in is incidental to who you are. And that's why we can shape it, we can change it, we can paint it, we can do whatever to reflect the authentic me. I want to make my body into the authentic me to match the me that I feel. And the result is that bodily sacrifice for the sake of others is thrown out as a good, and instead, pursuing your own authentic self is elevated. As Sam Albury in his book on the body wrote, the hero today is not the person who risks his body for the sake of others, but the person who lays aside anything and anyone for the sake of being authentic. We most esteem self-expression. But the Christian message from Genesis and through to the gospel is that the body matters. Jesus died on a cross bodily. In his body, Christ saves us. And in heaven, Christ has a body. He wants to do something with our bodies too. The body matters. And in a fundamental way of saying it, the body is good. Part of this is because creation is good, okay? God designed the creation, we see this from the garden, to reflect him, but also to be enjoyed. He gave us taste, he gave us sight. He said, yes, enjoy things. Take a nap, drink the drink, have some food, laugh with friends, your physical body running, playing, dancing. Physically, we are made to enjoy the physical creation. And your body is good is what creation narrative tells us. Now, because of the fall, your body has problems. Your body will break down. You can be incredibly disoriented in the body that you're in, deeply grieved by the things that have happened to you in your body. But your body is also the one that God intended. And therefore, it is a gift from God. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity summarizes the Christian view when he says, Christianity is almost the only of the religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, and some kind of body is going to be given to us in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our eternal happiness. Christianity believes the body is good, creation is good, and body and bodily life is going to be a part of our eternal happiness. The body is good. The body is also eternal. So going back to the Adam creation thing, God did not make a soul called Adam. Here's the Adamness of Adam, this soul thing. And then he went around looking for something to put it in. It was like, well, I better kind of take some dirt and make it into a clay vessel and then shove the Adam into it. You and I are not eternal spirits, meaning we existed in spirit before time began. God knew about us before time began, but you didn't exist before time began, only God did. 
We're not an eternal spirit that inhabits a body for 70 or 80 years. And yet, every single human you have ever seen is an eternal being. A person made in the image of God intended to live forever. Think about the profound nature of what I just said right there and the implications related to sex. At conception, when life begins, an eternal bodily life is created. That's why sex is so sacred and profound. When sex is brought into God's purposes in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman, in sex you are creating a new eternal life. It's not just about you or your happiness. This is eternal sacred life you're messing with. We're meant to enter into the procreation of. Our bodies are good. Our bodies are eternal. Our bodies are also physical. You know, the incarnation, God kind of took up residence in the neighborhood, as one writer calls it. He, he entered life with us physically. God didn't just stay up there or far away or in something. He entered human life. And if we are made in the image of God, we're called to do human life in physical proximity to one another. We're, we're called to incarnate life. We are physically embodied beings, and we're designed to be relationally, physically present and proximate with one another. Physical presence matters. That's why gathering together like this matters. But we live in an increasingly online world, right? Our work is online. Our social connections are online. And the result of that is a dehumanizing of us. It's a pulling away the body from the person. And it's why we can be so evil to each other online. As Sam Albury comments, we can find ourselves saying things we would never say if we were sitting across a table from them. Because we're not with them, we forget they are people, not just positions. And of course, how does the non-physical online world affect our view of sex? Sex is designed for a lifelong commitment and love with the possibility of new life being birthed, where naked physicalness or physical nakedness is accompanied by emotional nakedness, intellectual nakedness, relational nakedness, financial nakedness. In other words, you commit everything to the other person entirely, not just your physical body for one night. But what is pornography? It's taking the very physical act that is meant to be an intimate commitment of life together to create new life, and it's saying, you exist for my instant gratification. You're a means to an end. You're not a person. Pornography devalues and dehumanizes the actor and the viewer. It distorts God's intention for sex, for the body, for life. The body is good. The body is eternal. The body is physical. And the body is you. The body that you're in is yourself. 
or more helpfully, to think of yourself, experience yourself, be yourself, is to do so in a body, your body. When you say, I am hungry, you're not saying, the me that's me is hungry, but not my body. It's a part of who you are. Your feelings and experiences are felt and experienced, and your thoughts and experiences are thought and experienced in the body that you are in. You are an embodied being. You find yourself in yourself physically. Once again, going back to Sam Albury, your body, he writes, is not incidental to who you are. It is not a receptacle for the true you. It is not just that you have a body. You are a body. You cannot be you without your body. Christianity reverses the modern search for the authentic self. And it says this, you and I will understand our true selves, our authentic selves, in our embodied personhood. The person God created and called you to be. And called you to be eternally. Okay, I'm very long, but I've got a minute 50 on my countdown timer here. Now it's only a minute 45. Why did God create? And how do I end this in a minute and a half? So I, I answered this a couple of weeks back. Why did God create? God created because, okay, so we believe in a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in, a, in an eternal communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and an eternal loving communion. So in total self-donation and giving, the Father gives to the Son who gives to the Spirit, who gives to the Son who gives to the Father. They give to one another an eternal, eternal union. And what happens in the midst of that union of total self-giving and commitment for eternity is life is birth, creation. And then you and I are made in the image of God. And he makes us male and female different, like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different. And he calls us to come together as husband and wife in a lifelong union, mimicking the eternal union of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the course of time when it happens, new life is birthed too. Christopher West says, if you're looking for the meaning of life, it is impressed right in your body, in your sexuality. The purpose of life is to love as God loves. And this is what your body as a man or woman calls you to do. Think of it this way. A man's body doesn't make sense by itself. It really doesn't. Nor does a woman's body. Most of the body does, but some parts of it don't make sense by themselves. But seen in light of each other, sexual difference reveals the plan of God that man and woman are meant to be a gift to each other. <sighs> Timer, stop. Oh, good, I got 35 more minutes now. <laughs> God's story, we talk about it this way. Two, two, one way we talk about it regularly is it begins in a garden and it ends in a city, right? Eden, New Jerusalem. One of the other ways to talk about the entire story of God's story is a wedding. It begins in a wedding, and the wedding is this first wedding of the man and the woman. God gives the woman to the man and the man to the woman, and the two become one flesh. It's a wedding ceremony that's happening here in order to procreate and carry on God's purposes in creation. But the story of creation ends in a wedding. In Revelation 19, it is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Only in that case, it's Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. That means that you and I, whether you're a guy or a girl, we are the bride. 
We are the bride of Christ. To put it in another way that's sort of flipping it, God wants to marry you for all eternity. That's why sex is sacramental. It is a sign pointing to God's plan. The husband gives himself to his wife in total self-donation and giving. And she receives him and new life is birthed. Sex is not essential to be happy, to be the true you. God is. Only God is essential for true and lasting joy and peace and love. Do you know that God created us to share in his divinity? Union with Christ. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. He gives himself to us in Christ and intends one day as the groom to fill us, the bride, with the fullness of his life and love. All we need to do is open ourselves to receive it. Let's pray. God, you created us in your image. Male and female, you created us. In the image of God, you created us, and you brought us together in community and in marriage to give and to receive. And yet this is a mystery, for it is Christ in the church. Your plan for all of eternity is to unite us to you to bring our bodily life to eternal joys and peace and happiness. Take our lives now, take our life now, our physical life, our emotional life, our spiritual life, and make it yours. Amen.